Welcome to Peds Soup, the podcast that serves up topics throughout the world of pediatrics. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. Today, I want to talk about a topic that I spent a fair amount of time on getting ready for my pediatric board exam, and one that's relevant in any setting where you're working with kids. Growth. To make sure we're all starting from the same place, let's take a minute to go over the growth patterns most kids follow. First, weight. It is totally normal for a full-term baby to lose up to 10% of his or her birth weight in the first few days after delivery. When they're born, kids have a lot of extra fluid on board, and the weight loss happens as they get rid of it. As long as everything is going well, whether the baby is breastfed or formula-fed, they should be back to birth weight by the time they're two weeks old. Once baby gets back to gaining weight, she's going to be putting on about 30 grams, or one ounce, a day for the first three months. That adds up to just under two pounds a month. If you're keeping track of a baby's weight, whether you're a doctor or a parent with a scale at home, it's important to remember that one ounce a day is an average, not a requirement. If you weigh a baby every single day, you're going to see variations. Some days they'll go up two or three ounces, some days they'll drop an ounce, depending on how full their stomach is, the last time they filled up a diaper, and all kinds of other variables. But if you look at the trend over time, it comes out to about an ounce a day. After the spurt in the first three months, day-to-day growth slows down gradually through the rest of the first year. You expect a baby to have doubled her birth weight by anywhere from four to six months, depending on the source you're using, and to triple it by her first birthday. Once she's two, that little baby will be four times the weight she was when she was born. After the first two years, weight gain stays steady at about four or five pounds a year until puberty. With length, there's a little less to go through, but it takes longer to get to that childhood steady state. Most babies start out in an average of around 20 inches long, and they grow another 10 inches by their first birthday. From age 1 to 2, they typically grow another 4 inches, and then grow 3 inches between 2 and 3, and another 3 inches between 3 and 4. From 4 years old until puberty, most kids will grow about 2 inches a year. Once puberty hits, everything about life gets weird and unpredictable, and growth patterns are no exception. Puberty starts at a different age for everybody, and goes at its own pace, which means that growth spurts are happening at different times for everyone. Not only that, there's a wide range in how much and how fast it's normal to grow during puberty. That being said, there are a few themes. The growth spurt tends to start at Tanner stage 2 or 3 for girls and Tanner stage 4 for boys. For any non-medical listeners, the Tanner stages are a way of tracking the progress of puberty and range from stage 1, which is no changes at all, to full adult features in stage 5. The difference between stage 2 and 3 for girls and stage 4 for boys comes out to girls starting their growth spurt about 2 years earlier than boys. That's why the girls are usually towering over the boys at those early middle school dances. That 2 year delay in growth spurt is also important because it contributes to men typically being taller than women as adults. Puberty is the last big push in growth. Once that growth spurt is over, there's not much more height to come and boys get two more years of that pre-puberty growth before it starts. That means starting the growth spurt about four inches taller. Remember, kids grow about two inches per year from four years old until puberty. One last thing to wrap up normal growth, predicted heights. I'm only including this because some of the disorders we're going to talk about deal with predicted heights, and I wanted to give a little more background information. There are a lot of ways to project how tall a kid is going to be but the easiest one to grasp is the mid-parental height. 
This is a weighted average of the parent's height, weighted a little taller for boys and a little shorter for girls. To come up with the number, you add together the parent's heights in centimeters, then add 13 to the total for a boy, or subtract 13 for a girl. Then you take that number and divide it by 2 to get the midparental height. The vast majority of the time, the child's adult height will be plus or minus 8.5 centimeters, or about 3.25 inches, from the calculated value. To give an example, my mom is 5'6", and my dad is 5'8". I'm just under 6'1". When you see us together, I literally stand out from them. But, when you plug my parents into the equation for mid-parental height, it says that my expected height is anywhere between 5'6 and a quarter and 6 feet 3 quarters of an inch. Is that a wide range? Of course it is! But the fact that anyone with this equation in a calculator can predict a child's height within a 6 inch range is still pretty impressive. Like I mentioned, there are plenty of other ways to predict how tall a kid is going to be, and they range from old wives' tales to detailed testing of hormone levels and skeletal maturity. But mid-parental height is the easiest one to wrap your head around and, in case you're using this podcast to help you study for a test, the easiest to remember when a question about growth comes up. Now that we've covered the usual pattern, we can talk about the unusual stuff, starting with being bigger than expected. There are a few different syndromes associated with tall stature, particularly Marfan syndrome and Kleinfelter syndrome. We're not going to cover those in much detail at all this time around since they fit in better with other topics, but just keep in mind they're associated with being tall. It can, of course, be normal to be tall. Not every center in the NBA has two six foot nine parents or some kind of disorder, although some of them do have some suspicious features, and by the end of this podcast you can try to pick them out for yourself. There are a couple disorders that I think are interesting because they lead to big kids and normal-sized adults. The first one is cerebral gigantism, also known as Soto syndrome. These kids are big all over. They're large at birth, and they keep growing quickly throughout their childhood. They also tend to have low muscle tone and some delays in both gross and fine motor skills that often make them seem clumsy. As far as other physical features, they generally have widely spaced eyes, big ears, and a pointy chin. Interestingly, puberty starts early in kids with Soto syndrome, which, if you remember when we were talking about the growth spurt, means they end up with a shorter adult height than if they'd kept following the usual timeline. In this case, big kids end up being about the height you would expect based on their parents. The other syndrome worth mentioning, particularly for listeners who are studying because it's a popular one on tests, is Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. Like in Soto syndrome, kids with Beckwith-Wiedemann are born big and grow at the top of the growth curve, usually above the 97th percentile, until things slow down at around 7 or 8 years old. One of the characteristic features of Beckwith-Wiedemann is hemihypertrophy or hemihyperplasia, one area of the body being disproportionately larger. Classically on the test, you'll either read about or see a picture of a kid whose right or left arm and leg are bigger than the other side. People with Beckwith-Wiedemann also typically have ear abnormalities and enlarged organs. As adults, these patients are usually at the upper end of normal for height, but not as large as you'd expect from their childhood growth pattern. When it comes to true giants, literally the disorder is called gigantism, the cause is excess growth hormone. High levels of growth hormone before the growth plates have closed lead to rapid growth in height that's typically proportional. This is a pretty rare condition, and can be hard to pick up because early on the child might seem like someone who's just on the upper end of normal. You should get suspicious if a kid is growing faster than you'd expect, rapidly crossing percentile lines on the growth chart, 
or has a height above the 99.9th percentile. Appropriately, the best example I could find for gigantism is the tallest man on record, Robert Wadlow. He was 8 feet 11 inches tall and is a perfect example of gigantism. He grew fast and early. He was taller than his dad by the time he was 8 and 7 feet tall at 12 years old. And he was normally proportioned. When you see pictures of him, he looks normal enough until you realize the people he's standing next to are adults and not 5-year-olds. Robert was still growing at 22 years old when he was officially measured at 8 feet 11.1 inches. Unfortunately, he died 18 days later. It didn't have anything to do with his gigantism, at least not directly. It turns out, being enormous takes a toll on your knees and ankles, and Robert often had to wear braces. One of them didn't fit quite right and caused a blister on his ankle, which later became infected. There are some reports that he might have had an autoimmune disorder that made things worse, but 1940 was also not the best time in history to contract a severe infection. Getting back to the disorders, the last thing to mention for being too big is acromegaly. This is what happens when there's too much growth hormone after the growth plates have closed. There's no more potential for height, but soft tissues and some of the small and flat bones can still grow. People with acromegaly get large hands and feet, coarse facial features with a heavy brow, and generally have an exceptionally deep voice. My favorite example for acromegaly is Andre the Giant. If you aren't familiar with Andre, you should be. I'd tell you to press pause and go watch The Princess Bride or at least Google him, but I'm worried you'd never come back. He was a genuinely interesting guy. Samuel Beckett, who won a Nobel Prize and wrote Waiting for Godot, used to drive Andre to school because he was too big to fit on the bus. Andre was also so insistent on paying for dinner with his friends that he once literally carried Arnold Schwarzenegger away from the cashier. If this was a different kind of podcast, I would spend an entire episode on him. But we need to get back on topic. Andre does have all the classic features of acromegaly. He did have some aspect of gigantism. He was around 7 feet tall and called the giant, after all. But he had the heavy brow and coarse facial features right out of a textbook. And his teeth were a little bit widely spaced too, which happens because of bony growth in the jaw. His hands were also huge. Not to send you on another Google errand, but search for Andre the Giant holding a can sometime. It's pretty impressive. That pretty well covers the highlights of being too big, so now we'll move on to being too small. One thing we're not going to cover here is failure to thrive. Yes, it causes kids to be smaller than expected, but it's primarily nutritional and something that would be better covered in another episode. I want to keep the focus here on true growth abnormalities. Just like with being tall, it can be perfectly normal to be short. Genetic or familial short stature is the term for kids who are built to be small. Their parents and siblings are all small, and the kid is following along a growth curve just at the low end of the spectrum. Their bone age, which is an evaluation of skeletal development, is in line with their actual age. There's nothing that needs to be done. They're short, and that's fine. Another point on the normal end of the spectrum is constitutional growth delay. These kids' growth slows down, and they slip on the growth curve somewhere between 1 and 3 years old, then come back to a normal or slightly accelerated rate somewhere around 2 or 3. Puberty is usually delayed. These are the late bloomers, and there's often a family history of the same. For the test takers out there, look for the dad who says he was the shortest person in his class until junior year. If you take an x-ray, their bone age is younger than their actual age. A 13-year-old might have a skeleton that looks like it belongs to a 10-year-old. Once these kids hit puberty, though, they grow fast and jump back up to the height range you'd expect them to be. 
As a general rule, it's fine to wait it out and let the kid catch up during puberty. But if a patient, and in our culture it's usually going to be a boy, isn't showing any signs of puberty by age 14 and is having some social, emotional, or psychological problems because of it, there's the possibility of using testosterone therapy to jumpstart puberty. It's delicate. There's a series of injections and you have to monitor closely to make sure you stop treatment once puberty is up and running. But it can be a big help if your patient is having a lot of trouble coping with the delay. Getting into the more abnormal conditions, growth hormone deficiency is exactly what it sounds like. There are a lot of diseases and syndromes that have growth hormone deficiency as a feature, ranging from tumors to infections to genetic disorders. Growth hormone deficiency is usually associated with deficiencies of other hormones, which leads to some of the common symptoms. Genital abnormalities from decreased sex hormone production, low blood sugar and low blood pressure from lack of cortisol, and some of the hormone deficiencies also worsen the tendency towards short stature. A growth hormone deficient infant can also look septic with low temperature and low blood pressure, but all the infectious testing will be negative. As far as growth goes, as you'd expect, kids with growth hormone deficiency are small. They grow really slowly and fall off the growth curve by around 3 years old. Their length is more than 3 standard deviations below average. That puts them in the bottom one half of 1%, and their bone age is also delayed. The definitive diagnosis is by lab testing. You do something that would be expected to increase growth hormone production, and if the levels stay low, you have the diagnosis. The good news is that there's some good capacity for improvement if you replace the hormones they're deficient in. Finally, there's dwarfism. Dwarfism is really a catch-all term that covers anyone with an adult height of 4 feet 10 inches or less. A big portion of the dwarfism syndromes affect cartilage cells, which makes sense because for a bone to grow in length, it needs a cartilage precursor. There are more than 200 different disorders associated with dwarfism, and unless you're a geneticist, you don't need to know very many of them. There are, however, some really good examples out there in popular culture. Vern Troyer, who's famous for playing Mini-Me in the Austin Powers movies, has cartilage hair hypoplasia. This is a rare condition that leads to some of the most severe short stature seen in any of the dwarfism disorders. Warwick Davis is one of the most famous and prolific dwarfs around. You might not recognize him, but you've definitely seen him, even if it was under several layers of makeup and prosthetics. He was one of the Ewoks in Star Wars, the title Leprechaun in the Leprechaun movies, which you can definitely skip unless bad horror movies are your thing, and, most importantly for a pediatrics podcast, played both Professor Flitwick and Griphook the Goblin in the Harry Potter movies. Filmography aside, Mr. Davis has spondyloepiphyseal dysplasia congenita, a condition that affects cartilage formation and causes decreased growth in the trunk and limbs. The most important thing for you to know about cartilage hair hypoplasia and spondyloepiphyseal dysplasia congenita is that you don't need to remember them for anything other than trivia night or a career in genetics. The only dwarfism syndrome you should know about, wherever you might be in medicine, is achondroplasia. Achondroplasia is one of the most common causes of dwarfism in the world. It's caused by a mutation in the gene for FGFR3, which leads to a decreased number of cartilage cells and impaired growth of long bones. It's an autosomal dominant disorder, which means that anyone with one abnormal gene will have achondroplasia. However, if someone has two abnormal genes, it's a lethal condition either before birth or shortly after. That leads to an important point for any of you who have an exam coming up. It's always been a popular question to ask if both parents have achondroplasia, what are the chances of them having a normal-sized child, or of having a child with achondroplasia? 
The usual Punnett squares tell you that 1 and 4 will be normal, 1 half will have achondroplasia with 1 normal and 1 abnormal gene, and 1 quarter will have 2 abnormal genes. But remember, the kids with 2 abnormal genes generally die before birth, and we're only talking about the living offspring. So instead of doing our probabilities based on 4 offspring, we're working with 3, which means that there's a 1 in 3 chance of a normal height child, and a 2 in 3 chance of one with achondroplasia. The question writers are sneaky like that. It's appropriate that achondroplasia, the only cause of dwarfism most people need to know about, is the diagnosis for the most famous dwarf in the world right now, Peter Dinklage. Peter Dinklage is a great actor who right now is best known for playing Tyrion Lannister on Game of Thrones. Or, if you're viewing Habits Skew Younger, the children's book writer who beats up Buddy for calling him an elf in Elf. If you haven't caught up on either of those, just about all of the Oompa Loompas in the original Willy Wonka with Gene Wilder are also good examples of achondroplasia. Peter Dinklage, and when you take away the orange skin and green hair, the Oompa Loompas, have all the classic features. Achondroplasia causes what's called disproportionate dwarfism. Their torsos are pretty normally sized, but their arms and legs are shortened and so are the fingers. The buzzword you'll sometimes see on exams is trident hands. Their heads also look relatively large with a prominent forehead and a flat nasal bridge. All of these features are because of the bones that are most affected by the decreased number of cartilage cells. There can be some complications related to spinal cord compression, but overall people with achondroplasia have a good prognosis with a normal life expectancy. So unless he gets written off, Tyrion should survive through the end of the series. And that's it. The end of our tour of growth, from normal patterns to literal giants and dwarfs. To recap a couple of the higher yield points, for normal growth, try to remember the 30 grams or 1 ounce a day weight gain in the first 3 months, and that it's 5 pounds and 5 centimeters a year from childhood through puberty. When it comes to evaluating for growth disorders on either end of the spectrum, family history and bone age are going to tell you a lot of what you need to know. There's not much to remember for tall stature, it's not one that comes up too often on exams. Just be sure to consider disorders when a kid is growing more rapidly than expected or well over the 97th percentile for height. As for dwarfism, just remember Tyrion and the Oompa Loompas. Hopefully this was interesting and a little bit informative, and if nothing else, you can keep yourself entertained learning about Andre the Giant. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a rating on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you found us. If you have comments or if there's something you'd like to hear about on a future episode, you can email us directly at peedsoup. That's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.